morning and welcome back to the relaunch of the City Diplomacy Students Podcast at Sciences Po, where, together with our peers, we delve into and explore the topic of city diplomacy. In today's episode, we will continue the intriguing discussion surrounding the importance of city networks around the world, beginning with one of great interests of ours, the Rainbow Cities Network. My name is Josephine Bidegard. And my name is Sabina Baez. Welcome to the City Diplomacy Students Podcast. So Sabina, let's talk about the Rainbow Cities Network. What is it? Who founded it? And why is it so important in today's globalized world? The Rainbow Cities Network, short RCN, operates since 2012 and protects and supports LGBTI plus citizens and combats LGBTI plus discrimination through capacity building and lobbying. Currently, the network consists of 34 members from 17 countries and four continents. For instance, members are Taiwan, Sao Paulo, Brussels and Paris. For two years now, RCN has been self-sustained and has financed its activities mostly through membership fees. With this, the network went through a restructuring phase and is now ready to leverage its impact. RCN is managed by a coordinator and administered by the board, consisting of five member cities. And actually, this coordinator is our honored guest today. We warmly welcome Manuel Rosas Vasquez. Manuel, please tell us a bit about yourself and your function at the network. Okay, thank you. So as you said, my name is Manuel and I'm the coordinator uh, from Rainbow Cities Network since last year, 2019. And basically um, I coordinate the work within the network and also outside the network in the sense of contacting new cities, uh, other international bodies, um, in this case, particularly with the European Union, with the UN. So basically I'm managing person in charge of the network that it works um, as it's supposed to uh, with the mandate that the uh, board assigned me when I was um, hired for this great task. Oh wow this sounds like very engaging and important work but what I do not understand quite yet is how the network actually works. Let me jump in here again as I think the network found a very interesting answer to that. So instead of working directly with politicians, cities are represented by staff members to ensure sustainability and commitment regarding policymaking and implementation. Further, the network meets once a year and communicates via an internal email list. But wait, what is the role of the mayor then? Do they have one? Yes, yes, they do. The mayors or deputy mayors need to ensure political support. This is done by signing a memorandum of understanding in which they commit to goals and activities of the network. Wow, it sounds like the network is truly committed to ensuring compliance with their objectives and aspirations. Manuel, we are very impressed by the work of the Rainbow Cities Network. Be it your visibility through the powerful images you create, for example, on the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia, when all member cities contribute with a visual presentation of their communities. For example, in 2020, when the topic was lesbian visibility, in which all member cities either raised the rainbow flag or displayed rainbow colors in at least one public building. 
initiatives like these truly enhances LGBTI plus visibility worldwide. We could also see that you support NGOs and civil society outside your network, for example, by providing assistance to the LGBTI plus community in Poland. So how do member cities collaborate on these important projects and what has been the biggest impact of your network so far? Okay, so uh, thank you very much for, for listing those um, initiatives that we have so far. So I, I, before I answer concretely to that, I just want to say that the organization was founded in 2012. Um, however, in 2018, um, the members of the organization decide to, let's say, be an independent organization because before that, it was funded by the Dutch government. So from that time on and since last year, the network was... Uh, building their work around the best practices exchange. It's complex because cities, uh, different from federal government, they usually have to coordinate with federal governments, which, I mean, which is country. So in this case, these cities have been, I would say, a lighthouse, not only in Europe, but around the world. So these cities, basically, the best success is that we can exchange those best practices in the sense that initiatives that are run by the cities that can that other cities not only in Europe can replicate of course in their national and local context because of course big cities like Paris or Berlin or Brussels for instance they have more resources not only financially but also human that compared to smaller cities so let's say that the big success so far is that we're able to transfer knowledge and experience to other cities with different sizes. Thank you, Manuel. It sounds like the Rainbow Cities Network really aims to co-develop caring LGBTI plus cities worldwide by practicing both LGBTI plus diplomacy and producing LGBTI plus policy capacities. One thing, Manuel, that we found very interesting is the publishing of your one-pagers, which you just mentioned. So allow me to elaborate on that. All members annually publish a one-pager, which summarizes the city's LGBTI plus initiatives and policies. The three most successful programs are then highlighted in the network's best practice document. During the network's annual meeting, the cities then reflect and exchange expertise, analyze the impact and adopt similar initiatives based on each member city's one-pager and the network's best practice document. Thus, by connecting various actors, such as local administration, civil officials, policy makers, and experts globally, the Rainbow Cities Network seeks to become the benchmark for the implementation of LGBTI plus public policies around the world. Wow, Sabina, it sounds like the Rainbow Cities Network is on the forefront of LGBTI plus rights, which through its dedicated and passionate lighthouse cities truly fulfills its purpose by establishing a growing network of international rainbow cities who protect and support the LGBTI plus community, increase impact by collaborating on policy implementation and truly realize that cities are key players in the fight to ensure human rights for LGBTI plus people globally. So Sabina, we have talked about what the Rainbow Cities Network is, what they do and their core missions, but we're not done quite yet, are we? 
No, we are actually heading into my favorite segment of this podcast, the SWOT analysis, which truly makes you sweat. That's right, Sabina. We are now entering the rather sweaty segment, the SWOT analysis, in which we review the city network of the day by providing an engaging discussion surrounding the network strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. I already feel warm. Yes. However, we do this through an interactive discussion in which we apply the categories of the SWOT model within three different themes, which includes visibility, communication, and participation, then reach, impact, and knowledge transfer, and lastly, COVID-19 reactions and action. That's right, Sabina. So thinking about the first theme, visibility, communication, and participation, what are your thoughts? Well, to begin, visibility, as highlighted, is a key strength of the Rainbow Cities Network. The network knows how to produce impactful images which speak for itself, whether it is raising rainbow flags at city halls or changing pedestrian lights so that they display same-sex couples. The RCN has also an accessible digital presence, communicating via several platforms, such as Twitter, Facebook, the website, and a quarterly newsletter. And lastly, the publication of the annual one-pager is very much to the point and offers a concise overview of their important work. Yes, that's true, Sabina. And they collaborate with many NGOs, which I am sure increases their visibility, credibility, and the effectiveness of their operation on the ground. Absolutely. They even support NGOs and LGBTI plus communities outside the network, as this was recently the case in Poland. The network raised awareness about the attack on LGBTI plus rights and supported local civil societies. Well, it is both inspiring and encouraging to learn about their collaboration with NGOs globally. However, in our research, it was difficult to identify how the network enables broader citizens' participation. Thus, I wonder how far participatory processes are used to involve citizens in the development of policies and local strategies. That's an excellent point, Josephine. And I believe they could easily make the network more approachable for citizens. For example, by introducing workshops in which citizens give feedback to the one-pagers and provide innovative solutions for further policies. The network can ensure that their policies truly impact the lived reality of their citizens. Another example excludes cooperation with students' initiatives to connect with the scientific community and such to receive support in drafting and publishing written resources that could enhance the visibility of the network while increasing accessibility to information. Lastly, LGBTI plus city tours, which focus on the LGBTI plus history, could also motivate citizens to get involved. Wow, Sabina, these are great ideas. And at the same time, I believe it's crucial to mirror the limited financial and temporal capacities of most cities. And this is another major strength of the Rainbow City Network. The network clearly sets out the expectations of each member city, which includes participating in the annual meeting, developing one-pagers, and hand in one picture for the photo exhibition annually, which makes it possible for cities to stay involved with low costs, ensuring the network's durability. 
I think this is one of the reasons why almost 80% of the members are actively engaged. Yes, and durability is a great keyword. I think it is further ensured by the split responsibilities of mayors and employees of the city administration. While mayors change quite often and might focus on short-term success, many employees probably work for years in the city halls, which allows for relationships to build. Definitely. And additionally, the network does not depend on external donors as they are a self-sustained organization, which also contributes to their independency and durality. Absolutely. And this is especially important considering the volatility of governments. To clarify, there's always a threat that future governments might leave the network due to diverging politics regarding LGBTI plus policies and rights, while networks focusing on topics such as economic growth might enjoy unlimited support. Lobbying for LGBTI plus rights include greater challenges. Sabina, if we look at our second theme of the day, reach, impact, and knowledge transfer, there is truly a lot to say. If we begin by contemplating the question of impact, I think a valuable strength is the way in which the Rainbow Cities Network works with policy development and implementation. Since 2015, member cities of the network have developed and implemented more than 100 policies in 30 cities, positively affecting not only the LGBTI plus community, but also refugees, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. That is absolutely true. Not to mention the best practice exchange during the annual meeting, which has allowed for an exchange of more than 150 innovative best practices. This is truly inspirational. However, while looking at the regional representation within the network, the majority of member cities are European cities. This rather limited representation of member cities caused us to question whether there is a lack of intersectionality, which might negatively affect the reach of the network. Indeed, if seeking to become the benchmark for the implementation of LGBTI public policies around the world, it might require the presence of more diverse cities. Manuel, what are your thoughts on intersectionality? So I think one big example of intersectionality within the network is me being the coordinator. I'm a brown person. I'm originally from Mexico. The network, first step, I'm not saying that they did it because of that. Hopeful, I hope. Uh, that rather was my qualifications, but I would say that the first step that the, the network did was to hire someone with my background, that I'm not um, originally European, I'm not white. And what we're doing now, the, um, the policies that we are going to enact, that it's a project of two years, we are going to try as much as possible to have this intersectional approach. Because usually, and this is very important, uh, and people might be, or it might be obvious for them that they say, okay, intersectional, well, they're going to focus only in the um, sexual orientation strand, let's put it this way, and probably BIPOC strand, right? Which for those who doesn't know who is BIPOC, it's a Black Indigenous person of color. But also uh, intersectionality has to do with uh, financial status. Also religion, it's an important thing. So we're trying to bring all those concepts to our policy guidelines. That is so interesting, Manuel. Thank you. 
Another opportunity we discussed, which could further strengthen the network's vision of becoming the benchmark of LGBTI plus public policies, includes increased lobbying of international organizations such as the UN. As many of us may already know, one of the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals is Goal 11, Sustainable Cities and Communities. And although the indicators of this goal do not specifically highlight LGBTI plus experiences, civil society has emphasized the necessity of governments to account for these while developing responses to the SDGs, to leave no one behind. The Rainbow Cities Network can thus, as they recently did during a roundtable organized by the UN's Economic Commission for Europe, bring about knowledge transfer to the international stage regarding the importance of including LGBTI plus experiences. Wow, what an opportunity to truly practice what the networks themselves call LGBTI diplomacy. However, a possible threat to pushing an international agenda is the deprioritization of the local on the ground improvements. In other words, let us not forget about the strong impact the Rainbow City Network has on its member cities. Now, moving on to our last theme of today, COVID-19 reaction and action. Manuel, the LGBTI plus community has been greatly affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. For example, the human rights campaign noted that LGBTI plus people are not only more likely to experience a cut in work hours, but they are also more likely to work jobs in highly affected industries, are less likely to have health coverage, and are at both heightened health and economic risk of the virus. Thus, it is without a doubt that the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the lives of the LGBTI plus community worldwide. How is the Rainbow Cities Network affected by this pandemic? And what is your strategy to continue supporting the LGBTI plus community during and after this crisis? Thank you very much for that question. Um, yeah, as you mentioned it, um, the LGBTI plus community um, is being affected, I wouldn't say the most, but at least it's been revealed that um, our community remains vulnerable. So our cities, fortunately, conscious about that, they tried to, uh, to keep continue with their policies and to give an extra help to certain communities. An example that I can mention, for instance, the city of Geneva last year, they provided with um, direct help to the trans community. They provided at least um, with uh, basic, uh, let's say, food and shelter. So, I mean, that's a concrete example. We as a network, however, and this is very important to underline, we as a network, we cannot intervene directly into the cities because the cities are independent and then decide what kind of policies they can implement. So... On that regard, I would say that fortunately our cities were able to respond probably, and that's also important to, to highlight, probably not to the extent that the most affected who have wanted, because I don't want to uh, send a wrong uh, message saying that, oh, no, no, we are fine. No, I'm sure we fell short, uh, but as everybody um, experienced, it was really unexpected, but there were concrete actions taken. Thank you, Manuel, for your honest response. 
Evidently, the COVID-19 crisis affected both the network and its member cities. And in correspondence with your thoughts, we also found in our analysis that the cities themselves reacted, but that there was barely any coordinated response by the network. Yes, indeed. We could see that all future events were either canceled or postponed. It could be an option to start planning some of them in an online setting, as this was the case with the last year's annual meeting. Additionally, we thought that adding information and support material on the pandemic for the LGBTI plus community on the website could also prove beneficial. Definitely. However, this crisis also offers a unique opportunity to ensure a LGBTI plus rights-based approach to post-COVID-19 recovery packages through national, regional and international lobbying. For example, by creating a collaborative hub between city networks and NGOs on interdisciplinary issues, the Rainbow City Networks could join forces with other actors and call upon international organizations to implement policy changes on a global and on a regional level. By using the exceptional visibility, the RCN could spread awareness about this new exciting hub of expertise and their diplomatic aim. As Manuel said, even if the network might have fallen short in their reactions to this pandemic, the Rainbow Cities Network continues to identify new solutions to strengthening the network and its mission in the aftermath of the pandemic. So, to conclude, Manuel, would you mind sharing the next steps of the network and what the future holds for you? Right now, we are um, creating an initiative uh, among our members that it's called Share the Rainbow. And basically what we're doing is that each city using the Idaho beat uh, on 17th of May, they will send rainbow flag to one of their sister cities in uh, an invitation to raise the flag um, in supporting the LGBTI community. So basically we're doing not only, I mean, our work right now is not going to stay only in paper and not only um, among our, I mean, the members, rather we're trying to reach out and, um, and to help because that's the most important thing. And we were awarded by the European Commission uh, some funding to create the first LGBTI policy guideline. Uh, what do I mean by this? So I encounter cities that, thank God, not only the shift has not been only to the right, also to the left and to the green parties. And these parties are um, looking to be more social inclusive when it comes to the LGBTIQ community. But somehow, since they are new in power, they don't know where to start. So basically, these policy guidelines aim to help cities in Europe but also around the world because they're going to be available uh, everywhere to help those municipalities or boroughs. So basically, that's what we're aiming. Thank you, Manuel, for your answers. As we have discussed throughout this episode, the impressive work of the Rainbow Cities Network not only impacts their member cities and the LGBTI plus community, but also the international stage and individuals across the globe. What an accomplishment and what an important work. Yes, indeed. Thank you to both of you for this very inspirational discussion. I feel like I've learned so much. Thinking about keywords I'm taking with me today, I think about capacity building and knowledge transfer, visibility, durability, intersectionality, and solidarity, and the need to stay alert 
and active. Absolutely, Sabina. And with those words, we would like to say thank you for listening and we will see you next week.